Hi, everyone, and welcome to Human Center, brought to you by VML YNR. I'm Nick Brunker, a director of experience strategy and your host for the show. Thanks for dialing us up. On every episode of Human Centered, we explore how brands, both large and small, are creating meaningful customer experiences and discuss how professionals like you can tap into CX best practices to create value and gain traction in transforming your business. As leaders across practically every industry are knee-deep in planning and budgeting for what the return to office is going to look like, our guest today says there's a framework to follow that can keep employees safe, engaged, and delivering great work for their brands and the customers they serve. To tell us more, I'm so excited to welcome in the Global Chief Innovation Officer for VML YNR Commerce, Roy Armali. Welcome, Roy. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. This is uh, it's it's a great chance to be able to talk about something that I think's on uh, on everyone's mind these days. Absolutely. Before we dive into the topic, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you and your role with VML YNR Commerce. Uh, yeah, so my role is one of those uh, weird ones that's kind of taken shape um, over over the uh, the last couple of years, right? So I started out as a as a strategist um, before the merger. Actually, a long time before the first merger of Ogilvy Action into into geometry, <laughs> right? And so I was I was working I was working in strategy, and my my kind of approach to everything's always been kind of a, a human behavior approach. My my uh, graduate studies were on uh, were on behavioral psychology, so I kind of uh, got into that a lot, and it's, it's it's one of the most interesting things in the world to me. Mm-hmm. And so as as the work developed, and as as the you know as the new technologies came out, and so on. Um, I started a little bit getting into how human behavior is affected by technology and vice versa, um, and eventually got into innovation and um, and understanding how to create new tools, uh, adopt new tools, integrate new things from a change management point of view, and get into this role. So I'm now the chief innovation officer, so I work on understanding how to apply technology to changing human behavior, whether it's you know internally on a topic like the one we're talking about today, or uh, the majority of the time it's spent on understanding how to create commerce behavior and conversion uh, in the markets um, and for our clients. And it's crazy to look back and see some of the parallels that, that there are between where we are today and where, at least in the U.S., uh, where they were a century ago in terms of changing human behavior. And you talk about being able to understand, you know, how they think and how they you know, act in, in commerce and, and experience situations and even the working dynamics, which is what we're going to really unpack today. In the roaring 20s, people changed the way that they lived and worked because of those tech-led transformations that we all, I think, have heard uh, lots of things about over the years, affordable automobiles kind of coming into play then, mass electrification, radio expansion, telephone networks being built nationally. Uh, Because of these, people could become more flexible in their living and working circumstances. Employers like Ford, for example, started to pay their people more, attracting and retaining talent on their way to to things like unionizing, et cetera, et cetera. Talk about the relationship you see now between emerging technology and human behavior and facilitating transformation that's that's in parallel to what maybe we saw a century ago. I'm going to get into this from the point of view of, uh, of an equation by, by a, a guy called Victor Vroom, um, who talked about motivation, and, and he calls it the motivation expectancy theory, right? And this guy Vroom looked at things and he said, look, if you want to, if you want to get a person to do something, um, whatever you propose is going to be broken into three pieces in their mind. The first one is, can I do what's being asked of me? The second one is, will I get rewarded if I do what's being asked of me? And then the final piece is, will I like the reward? 
that is being given to me if I achieve what I'm meant to achieve. And that, that creates kind of the, the, uh, a multiplier between those three things. So if either one of those things is zero, because the score is between zero and one on each one of those three, if the score on, on any of them is zero, if you don't believe you're going to be rewarded at all, the whole equation falls apart because it's a multiplier, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I look at things in comparison with, with what was happening in the, in the 20s is the, is the second and third piece of the situation. So people looked at these technologies and said, hey, adopting this, I can adopt this. It's not a very difficult thing for me to adopt this new this new approach, this new technology, and so on, and I will try it out. The difference is, like you said in the in the 20s, there was a there was a pro-human movement, let's call it, that was that was pretty powerful. <laughs> right. More yeah, right? More unionization, more uh, uh, looking at things from a from a balanced perspective, we were looking at at, at at the reduction of work hours and all of that. The the, the movement for towards the rights was was powerful. Right now, I don't think we have that same general trust in the market on that kind of situation. I don't I don't think I think we've we've used a lot of that equity. And so when people are thinking about the second and third part of the equation, the will I get rewarded and do I like the reward, they're actually thinking actually if I start becoming more effective. Who's getting rewarded? Mm-hmm. Is it is it me or is it the company? Am I adopting this new tech so that more is is taken from me, or am I adopting this new tech so that I can benefit from the balance that's being given? And that's that's kind of the main difference that I'm seeing right now, and I'm seeing a, a bit more of a reluctance on on uh, on adoption. You can see this in in vaccination rates and, and all of that. The level mm-hmm. of trust on on the reward has been has been reduced. And so what I like about the way WPP is dealing with this, for example, is the level of flexibility that we're being given on the whole situation and the level of choice that's being that's being left with every with everyone. I'm seeing a lot more hard nosed and hard hard line decisions being taken in a few other companies that I don't know if I fully agree with. And the second part of it is we're looking into this in a very active manner. You know, there are groups of people that are looking to into. All right. How are we going to look at this thing to make people's lives easier so that we can maintain the level of talent mm-hmm. that we've got in the system? So while I do agree that the speed of innovation and so on is, is, is similar, I think that the barrier to adoption as a difference between now and back then is, the, is, is, is how we're going to instill uh, kind of this, reinstill this faith and trust that, that these advantages and this level of efficiency increase that's coming in is not only to the benefit of the organization, it's also and the benefit of the human. Yeah, and a Forrester research study recently found uh, that just 22% of global workers agree that their leaders have proven to be flexible in the face of these new challenges related to tech and, and really just the ways of working that, that are enabled by the technology. You talked a little bit about how WPP is handling it. How generally can listeners who may not be a part of the network combat that perception within their own company? Well, that's, that's, that's the other side of the coin. Right. We were talking about, all right, do I have do I have that trust and so on? But the other side of the coin is also, do I see how much effort everyone's putting into this discourse and, and, and in this debate? Right. We, we can we can say, all right, 22 percent are feel like their leaders haven't been flexible enough. Maybe they haven't. Maybe they have. Maybe they debated it to death and found that the scenarios didn't lead to something you know, productive and something that's appropriate for everybody. Had they taken other de- other decisions, and this comes down to transparency of the decision-making process, 
right? This comes down to, are we asking the right people? Are we, are we doing our pulse surveys? Are we figuring out what's important to everybody? How important it is for them to understand the rationale behind the decision and not only receive the decision as a, as a top-down approach, right? And this is, this is not easy because it takes a lot of time. If you want to explain the rationale behind your decision, you also need to be open towards critique of your approach and that creates debate and t debate takes time right so so there's there's that aspect of it and i guess the balance that i'm seeing that i'm seeing here is a is a decent balance and it would be a good idea for for other organizations to look at kind of this level of transparency on the process of the decision making the second part of it is conflicting expectations right when we say that 22% agree that their leaders have proven have uh, you know so the other what 78% think that they've been inflexible mm -hmm. compared to what Compared to which expectation, right? Where, where was the bar set on this on this whole thing? Did someone come in? Like, if you look at it in terms of adoption of new technology, enable to enable all of this flexibility. When you look at the adoption curve, it's huge, right? There's there's segment even the broad segments from innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, and laggards is already a very strong gradient. If I spoke to all of them then would I get the same answer on, on their expectations of flexibility as, as, as each other? No, it would, be, it would be very different from one group to another. And the other part of it is that that curve is also dynamic. It, I, I'm not a, I don't adopt everything at the same rate, mm -hmm. right? I don't look at all types of technology in the, in the same way. There are things that I'm very comfortable adopting very quickly, and there are things that I'm very uncomfortable adopting quickly. So, so the expectation setting is very important, which kind of is linked to the first point of the transparency on the on the decision-making process. And then the third part is the issue of scale. A lot of people underestimate how difficult it is to scale a solution. It's the hardest thing <laughs> in the world. Like, you, you, I mean, you, you, you look at entrepreneurs and how well they do in different things. And you're like, oh, that's a great idea. Of course it worked. Well, yeah, in retrospect, mm -hmm. of course it worked. But the hard part wasn't coming up with the idea. You know, we've got, you know, at least uh, seven, you know, moments of clarity in the shower a year where we come up with a million dollar idea. <laughs> exactly. The problem isn't, <laughs> yeah, the problem isn't the idea that the problem is getting a million people to, to use that idea, to adopt that idea. And so we, we look at things from the point of view of, let's take Office 365 as an example in Microsoft Teams. I'm not the biggest fan of the way that Teams uh, takes up 150% of the resources on my laptop and it overheats when I'm using it. <laughs> right. It doesn't, that doesn't make me happy. Right. And, and I look at zoom and I go, Oh, that's so much smoother to use. Well, yeah, until I need to share a file and I know exactly. that SharePoint would help me out a lot more until I need to drop an Excel sheet somewhere until, you know, so there, are, there are so many small things that will differ from a, from a solution that is made for a very specific use case to one that has a, a an economy of scope. So multiple applications. And the other part of it is, well, what if Zoom doesn't work in a place in a, in a, in a specific country? And I didn't think about that. What if it's banned in, a, in certain territories? What if its security measures don't work um, for specific clients to be comfortable with using it? I'm not saying that's the case. I'm, I'm just making a comparison between um, two systems that are, that are very popular. I could be saying the same thing about Google Suite, Slack, uh, whatever it is. And, and none of them, none of them are great they're all just good. And, and, and at scale, what you want is the scalable and, and, and large economy of scope good. And, and to be honest, 
Office 365 is like the most expensive one between them. So it's not even a cost cutting decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so when you put these three things together, it looks like people are being inflexible because they need to sit down and justify the process that they took to take a decision. And then they need it to fit within the expectation of a large gradient of people that consider the the different facets of flexibility and and adoption of tech and so on. And then they need to figure out something that you know fits both of those things and scales it's not it's not an easy thing to do and it's not meant to be easy i mean you know the 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 people at the top get paid a lot to take these very <laughs> exactly difficult right. decisions right <laughs> so so it is their problem it's not everyone's problem i'm not i'm not justifying anyone taking a wrong decision but I, I just don't like the way that the question is, uh, the study is, is, is set, you know, have proven to be flexible, uh, agree that their leaders have proven to be flexible. I mean, let's, let's figure out how to set a bar first and compare the expectations. And then we can go into kind of scrutinizing where it is and understanding which leaders are doing it right or wrong. Because I'd, I'd rather debate whether the right or wrong thing has been done rather than debate whether the communication on the right or wrong thing has been done. Because at the end of the day, we want to get the benefit of the decision, not just the security of having heard the rationale behind it either. Well, I was just going to say that's the challenge of of experience design and, and design thinking, it's when you look at experience like measurement objects, it's around perception. And so there's a lot of meat on that bone that you have to, you know, kind of unpack or peel back to understand exactly what is the reason why something is happening or, or why a, a customer, or in this case, an employee might be feeling the way they're feeling. But that, that also, you know, kind of puts a finer point on the need for good design thinking, good experience strategy principles as you're building. Because a lot of the things you said, when you're thinking about issues of scale, understanding, you know, viability, feasibility, desirability, that all comes from a place where you've got the people at the table to start to think that way, which I think for somebody in your role has to be a fascinating and exciting time because you really are, uh, as we talk about on this podcast, forming what the future of work is going to look like. And if you don't go down the design thinking route, you could put yourself in a really, really tough spot down the line, can't you? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. To, I'm lucky enough to be in a situation where I can con- contribute, not just not just be on the bus. And and the nice thing about it is that anyone else can as well by by making themselves heard. And that's that's something that's really important. That you know, voicing your your point of view and your perspective on this is very very important. As uh, you know, these decisions are getting taken as the uh, perceptions are being formed. Now. I, I love the fact that you brought in the, the design thinking aspect into this because design thinking is one of those rare approaches where uh, the role of data is is clear, and but it's not overwhelming. Mm-hmm. See, a lot of a lot of consultative approaches um, use data as a crutch. Let's go look at what the data says and then start taking decisions afterwards. While design thinking sets your your frame of thinking first, assigns a role to the data and the information, and then allows you to pull the insight from that data at the right point in time so that you can conclusively take a, a decision or inconclusively take a decision <laughs> that you can then that you can then test and, and experiment on. You can either end up with a decision or a hypothesis, which is which is wonderful because that's that's part of the iterative approach within within design thinking. And and this is where I feel like within the advertising community, we need to become a little bit more disciplined and a little bit more comfortable with the numbers. Because what happens is we tend to look at numbers versus gut feel rather than how numbers can help inform the gut feel. 
right? And I was I, actually, I, I, Lindsay, who, who, who heads up uh, our, our, our comms team, got us published in, in, in Ad Age about this particular topic, about, about the future of work, and, and so on. And, and, uh, and, and thankfully, she got us in there. And, and you know, we share it on LinkedIn, and we get perspectives of, of, of people. And, and we were talking about this hybrid situation and so on that's coming up. And we can we can dive into that a little bit later. But the reactions I was seeing on LinkedIn is, oh, nothing replaces face to face interaction. Well, yeah, <laughs> no, one, no one said it will. Exactly. Right? And, and but but when you look at how we've designed our offices and our systems around face-to-face interactions, you'll see that we've tried to shoehorn things with each other based on gut feel. And the example I like using here is open plan offices. The gut feel is remove the door, the, the walls, remove the doors, remove everything, make it an open space and collaboration will go up. It's the exact opposite. Mm. What happens is there's uh, a fourth wall that gets created, you know, just like with with uh, yeah, and and this is this is not my term. I got this from an HBR article. I'll need to send you a link on it, but it's a it's a beautiful concept of when you're sitting in an open plan, you create the fourth wall just like actors will create a fourth wall when when they're acting and don't want the audience to interact, and and you do that through your your micro movements through you know the look on your face and everything, and people look at you and they're like they're busy. I don't want to bother them. Mm. See, if you'd been in an office, someone would knock on the door and see if it's okay to come in. But since you're in an open plan, they assume that you've been interrupted enough. You've got your headphones on. You're in I want to be alone mode so people don't talk to you. Hmm. And you end up with less human interaction despite the fact that the doors and the walls have been have been removed. So our gut feel told us the opposite of what's actually going on. Well, if we'd taken this gut feel and then used it as a hypothesis and 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 did some observational uh, uh, set up on this so that we can draw the real conclusion from it, we would have noticed that, okay, uh, open plans are a compromise. It, it, it might be something that we need to do because of a business imperative or whatever to be able to get more people per square foot in the room, but uh, I haven't seen any conclusive evidence on on collaboration increasing when this happens. And so design thinking stops you from falling into that trap and allows you to give your gut feel some room to be able to say, all right, let's see what happens when there's no walls and when, and when there's no doors and how we design around that. And then it allows you to experiment around it and, and, and kind of see, okay, well, how can I create private spaces without them becoming the norm through a fourth wall? And then you start doing behavior-based thinking and that leads you to a more powerful hybrid workplace rather than, you know, an, an, an exercise in fitting desks together like Tetris. As Roy mentioned, uh, he has that article posted on AdAge, Five Ways to Improve the New Hybrid Workplace. We've added a link to that story in our show notes, so be sure to give that uh, a read uh, to, to get more on the topic because I think it's exactly what we're talking about and, and that balance between, you know, the technology and the in-person and, and making sure they're working uh, together in, in a symbiotic way is crucial. And technology inevitably is going to influence this. But the obvious question is, okay, you know that you need to invest. You know you need to find things that are going to hopefully scale or at least work together uh, on behalf of, of our employees and then the end consumer. How should leaders plan to invest and smartly apply it to their business? The first piece of input I will give on this is not to invest in the technology, but to invest in solving the problem. Because we, we tend to jump too fast into, all right, what's the new tech that's going to help us have a hybrid workplace? Mm-hmm. And we haven't looked into what we mean by a hybrid workplace yet. And, and, and um, the small kind of, let's say, challenge or, or mini goal that I've put um, uh, in front of people about this is resolving for the third person. 
Okay, and and this is this is kind of a, a concept of understanding what what we mean by uh, by by a proper blended environment. When you're sitting at your desk, you can work on your own, or someone can stand next to your desk and you could talk to them, or you could be on a video conference. So you've got three options: working with yourself, working with someone in the digital space, and that could be many people, or working with someone that is physically next to you. If you try to do more than two of those together, or two or more of these things together, then the system kind of falls apart. It is very difficult to get someone on the other side of the screen to talk to you and the person standing or sitting next to you at the same time. Suddenly this, this, this system falls apart and we say, all right, fine, there's meeting rooms for that. Well, yeah, there are meeting rooms for that, but I'd much rather be either physically in the meeting room with you or have the knowledge that no one else is because that's when our contributions will be balanced when everyone's online or when everyone's in the room. Hmm. But when you try, even in a good meeting room, when you try to have a, a, a meeting where there are three people on screen and five people in the room or three people in the room and five people on screen, it inevitably gets, gets, gets lopsided mm -hmm. towards the people that are in the physical space over the people that are in the digital. Or if the screen's big enough, it's the other way around. The screen <laughs> takes over and, and then it's, 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 um, it's a conference. It's a, you're, you're sitting there being spoken to. But the, the natural conversation somehow gets, gets diluted because of that third person. And the third person is always feeling like a third wheel, right? If you're, if you're on a, on a video call at your desk and there's someone standing or sitting next to you, the person sitting next to you is the third person. If you're in the meeting room with another person physically and someone else is on, is on screen, then the person on screen is the third person. We haven't figured out how to blend the environment properly, despite the fact that we've got augmented reality systems, we've got better, uh, better telephonic systems, all of that. We still need to put in ridiculous amounts of money to set up like a telepresence room or something for, for it to work out properly. And I, I don't know about you, but we're not going to spend 150 grand on every office Negative. to be able to have this thing feel a little bit. Yeah, that's not happening. That's, I mean, we're just not viable. Desk Tetris. <laughs> yeah, that's just, it's it's not, and so and so that's the challenge that I put in front of everybody. You wanna you wanna create a hybrid, a proper hybrid environment. Then let's figure out how to make the third person comfortable, because that'll lead to less face to face or digital and more face-to-face -face and digital. And that way, if you want to do the three days at home, two days in physical work, or three days in physical work and two days at home, you're able to do it without having to give up too much because that hybrid environment takes you into consideration as the third person. And it starts taking away those barriers of not interacting with anyone beyond like the, you know, 20 meter space that's around you because 90% of your interactions are going to happen to people with the extreme proximity. If someone's on another floor, you hardly see them, let alone if they're in two floors away or the, or the, or the building next door, then they might as well be in another country. That's where the balance is going to come from. That's, that's the challenge that, I, and that's kind of part of the, the, uh, the article that we wrote, understanding how to deal with that third person. And that directly affects how you're investing. You're, you're planning differently. You may be saving funds or repurposing funds for other things into this, this new pot of money, if you will. Back to that initial question of, of investing and how do I invest smartly, uh, talk about the, the first step in answering that question. Well, it, first of all, 
understanding how to invest smartly, you, you, you need to look at this from, from both sides, right? You need to look at it from the perspective of the people making the investment and from the people uh, requesting uh, uh, the investment, mm -hmm. right? Because what we, what we assume is, well, so, finance will assume someone needs to come to me with a proposal of what they'd like to do to create this environment. And, and so the others are thinking, well, I'd like to make a proposal, but I don't even know the ballpark of the money that I can be allowed to use to, to come up with, with a proposal. Can I redo the whole floor? Can I come up with, with some solution that puts tech everywhere? Can I avoid the tech completely and figure out a way to get, I don't know, everyone to move to offices just like our Kansas City office where we're all in airports and we travel all the time, you know? So uh, th these, are, these are kind of decisions where both sides need to come to the table prepared. The, the finance teams need to start looking at things from, an, from, a, from a proper investment point of view and go, all right, if I want to enable a hybrid workplace over the next five years, here's how much money I'd like to save and here's how much money I'd like to invest. So here's the starting point. Here's the budget starting point. Here's the brief that goes out. And at the same time, the the people teams and 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 the and the leadership teams and so on need to sit down and go all right well i would like to enable a hybrid workplace let's go through the design thinking approach let's understand human behavior and how people are reacting and how people are acting in the office and how they would like to act and react in the office and let's start building around that and we'll see how we how we meet those two things at whatever is feasible from a budget perspective only then do you start going into all right great what's the tech now it's tech time. It wasn't tech time before we started figuring out how people want to uh, want to work. It's it's let's figure out what we want to do and then go for the tech or else we're going to be inundated by all of these kind of new technologies that VCs happen to have, you know, more more money than sense and are are dumping into. And then five years from now, we're like, ah, we tried the wrong thing. Or even one year from now, we're going to figure out that we tried the wrong thing. So literally behavior first, tech second. Yes. Behavior first, tech second is kind of the has been the mantra of, of my career life, let's say, for for quite a while. It's it's just logic. Figure out who you want to motivate to do what and when, and who wants to be motivated to do what and when, and then and then try and find how you're going to do the tech. It's, I mean, it sounds it sounds childish even as a concept to a person that does proper CX and UX to mention a. Uh, uh, an approach like that. But the reality is not enough people think about it that way. So how are you applying this method in your role at VMLY and our commerce? You talked about a little bit uh, off the top of the of the block, but would love to hear more about you're, you're taking all of this thinking and actually activating it. And I think our listeners would be really interested in, in what you've been doing here. Well, we're we're looking we, we were looking at how we're going to enable this work a little bit better. And what we found was when we started looking into building tools that would enable the different kind of elements of what we do, a tool to help you with um, uh, collaboration spaces like a digital whiteboard, a, a tool that helps you um, evaluate your, your, your e-commerce process, a tool that helps this, a tool that helps that, we found that there were a lot of solutions that were already out there, um, either built by the WPP team and, and, and the WPP Open team. Um, or different opcos other than ours, or third parties that have already that have already come come up with solutions for each one of these things, and and uh, you know strangely enough this is this is why I was hired. I was actually hired back in by at the time he was the the, the CEO of uh, of EMEA, Klaus um, Klaus Adams for for geometry, and he told me, look, can you can you just help me find a way? Um, he actually gave this this brief to myself and 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 Cesar Montes. 
uh, who's now working on on um, on the supply side of this, I guess we can call it. And and he asked us like, how can I integrate data into the day to day thinking of everybody so that we can come up with better work? And then Bethan came in and later said, okay, this this is a good start. How can you enable the majority of the work that we do by using this thing? And she kind of gave it this steroids injection and, <laughs> and pushed us in front of the WPP Open team and said, hey, show it to them, see how they can help. And what this evolved into uh, with, with all of this input and feedback is we don't need to build the individual tools as much as we need to identify the best ones for the use cases that we've got and then figure out how to combine them in a way that everyone can use them. So you don't want to put all your money into a tool. It's, it's like the difference between putting your eggs in one basket or figuring out how to make a basket or many <laughs> baskets. So the, the, the analogy we used is we saw a lot of Lego pieces that help us build whatever we want to build everywhere. What we wanted to do was create the, the underlying uh, base plate, you know, the green, it's usually green, the green thing that you can build your Lego city on. That's right. We decided that we want, yeah, we decided that we wanted to figure out how to build that green uh, base plate. And then, and then if we find a Lego piece that we haven't created that someone else did, then our job is to figure out how to, how to make it click on so that, so that we can combine it with the different stuff that we have. And, and that gives enough freedom for everybody to work in their own way. Because what we provide everyone at that point is a box of Lego bricks and a green base plate, and then they can do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Because the first couple of tries we went after were, were to, to tell them, here are the three Lego bricks and here's how they click onto each other. Now go make the same thing that we made too, because it'll help you solve the problems for your business. And everyone was like, that's not how I work. That's not how my client works. That's not how anybody does anything the way we the, the way we do it. So, you know, stop telling me how to do my job. And we're like, okay, okay, fair, fair. And then when we came back with, all right, so here's a box of Legos and here's a base plate, do whatever you want. I'm not going to say everyone was like, oh, you solved it. This is amazing. No, but there was more of an acceptance to it. There was more of a, okay, so you're telling me I can, I can choose what I need out of this? Yes. And I can click them the way I want? Yes. All right. I'm willing to try this out. And the I'm willing to try this out is is fine by me. Like it's it's a win. Right. Because yeah. that's where remember, if we go back to the motivation expectancy theory, we just we just passed the first barrier of can I do this and do I want to do this? All right. We're not at at full swing, but we're resolving those those three facets of can I do it? Do I do I Will I get rewarded and do I like the reward? because we've given them the ability to control those three measures themselves and figure out you know, how complex they wanna make their Lego build will affect the can I do it part. The will I get rewarded part is based on their effort as well, so they're in control of it as well. And do I like the reward is, is between them and their client because they understand their client better than we do. And so handing over that control was, 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 a, was a very important part of the situation. So what does it all mean in terms of the impact of customer experiences and commerce evolution? Because, I mean, it's obvious the benefits and the impact it can make on the employee experience. But how does that trickle down to the end consumer who, whether it's B2B or B2C or a mix, how are they affected by this? Okay, so the, the end consumer here would be would be our clients and the work that we do with our with our clients, so our client teams. And 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 this is where we can become a little bit more 
uh, tangible in the conversation about what it is that we've built. So we've built a system where you can where you can where you can combine you know behavioral data with a panel in the market that you're working in to understand how people buy, and then the CCX team. Uh, led by by JB and Dan gave us a new tool that said, well, here's how you can understand the retailer. We're like, oh man, now we can now we can take retailer understanding and combine it with the profiles that we've created and how people buy. Great, now we can create better better strategies. And then uh, you know Ivan and Michelle uh, Bauman went in and said, okay, and here's here's a way for you to to be able to create your return on ad spend uh, calculations. There, great. Now we've got. That piece that, that does that, and the UK team uh, and, and Ramesh and, and Michelle Wheeling came in and said, "Well, here's here's a tool called CatScan. It'll help you figure out how people, uh, how the the um, e-commerce journey is set up by the client to see whether it works." Hmm. And and that's what we what we ended up with. Our end user is is going in there and going, "All right, my challenge is to do a better omni-channel journey for my client. Great, I'm going to need that information from JB and Dan to tell me about what's going on in the market and physical retail. I'm, not, I'm going to need that CAT scan thing so that I can understand what's going on in the in the e-commerce field, and that gives me the the environment I'm operating in. And let's grab that Pathfinder thing and figure out how people are taking the decision to buy so that we can manage this 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 approach and how important each one of these two are so that I can you know start creating a strategy for my client. And that's Combining these three on that base plate is something that you can that you can do now because we have these tools. They came from three different places, and then a third-party tool called Miro, which is like a a, a digital whiteboard, an infinite mm-hmm. whiteboard, is a place where you can combine these things and work on them together. So your end user of the Miro board becomes us and the client brainstorming there, while you've pulled in the data from the three other things that we talked about earlier. And 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 it helped you create a strategy, and that increases the trust between us and our clients because they see that we're using you know we're using very tangible information, but it's also through you know our own intellectual property that we're being able to use this, and so if they're the end user and they go well I have some data and I'd like to plug it in there well great, let's do that let's let's add the information it's it's not an or anymore same thing when we're working with uh, our colleagues at. Uh, Mediacom or WaveMaker, and they're like, oh, we've got this maximized tool. It'll tell you how to spend your, your your media budget when you're doing all of this thing. And WaveMaker Momentum will tell you about your pre-trigger priming that you need to do. <laughs> you see how every yeah. time, like, there's a new dimension that gets added to it. Now, you don't want to overwhelm everybody and go in and say, here's the 1,700 tools that you need to use, and they'll tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> it's 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 more of a slow build. Start by understanding the core of your challenge and what can help and, and, and give us a call and we'll, we'll help you, you know, make your own Lego masterpiece so that you can go back to your client and really build a, a, an approach that can help them sell more. Well, and, and even the perception at the end of the day uh, around just something as simple as, as omni-channel, it's an overused term. And in a hybrid world, there is really a difference between truly omni-channel and multi-channel. Tell us more about that distinction and why it's important here. Right. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to tell you how I feel about this through the words of of uh, of Will Good. He, he heads up. He heads up all of our, our new business. And he um, he called this our, our Iron Man moment. Right. And, and he's referring to to, you know, uh, the, the Marvel character Iron Man and how in in the first movie, um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character had to had to go and create this kind of suit uh, to be able to escape from a cave when he was kidnapped and so on. And, and you, you knew 
You saw that that was going to turn into Iron Man later, but it wasn't quite there. I mean, it looked like a clumpy piece of crap, but it got the job done just well enough. So that's us maybe eight or nine years ago when we started talking, uh, 10, 15 years ago. I'm, I'm old. Uh, when, when, we, when, we, <laughs> when we started talking about Omnichannel, but we were, you know, our Omnichannel was still that kind of machine that we'd cobbled together. We were talking a good game. And, and we wanted it to be the reality, but the technology and the systems hadn't really caught up. And then at the end of the movie, and in movies number two, three, and four, you had that moment where it was the actual Iron Man suit. The technology had caught up with the dream of what he wanted it to be. And, and you could see the suit, and you're like, okay, yeah, that thing in the cave, I, I, could, I could tell that it was hinting towards this. I, I could tell that he wanted to do this, but he didn't have you know, the material required. Now we've got that that required material to be able to do true uh, omni-channel. We've got, we've got human beings behaving in a way that they're accepting of, 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 uh, of true omni-channel. I mean, you're, you're selling stuff through, through TikTok um, rather than have people go into a brick-and-mortar store. If, if that isn't a sign, nothing, <laughs> nothing is, right? So, so that's where we need to start getting a little bit better at understanding all of these things because the more fragmented all of this becomes that we need to re-cobble into this omni-channel system, the more we need to become experts at a million things, and it is exhausting. And that's where the tools come in. They, 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 give you, they give you that slight edge at being able to understand things without needing to go into the huge depth of understanding of each one of the particular channels and systems and so on that you need to affect because, because the tool helps you, uh, you know, achieve that and, and, uh, uh, and give the output that you need to do. And so that's where that's where we are right now. I feel like yes, we've been talking about omnichannel for a long time, but I feel like we're at that Iron Man moment now where we where we can where we can walk the talk. I love it. You you come for the CX and the human centered goods, and you stay for the Marvel references. Love it. Absolutely love it. <laughs> you can thank Will. For that, yeah. man. He, thank you, Will. He, he comes, that, that was his second one. I think the, his first one was "Be More Thor," but that's a story for another yeah. day. I, I suggest you ask Will about that. We'll have to take that and put it into the outtakes. Will, you're on notice. I may be calling you next. Um, I guess before we run out of time, I'd love to you know, kind of pivot a little bit and talk uh, more about you off the clock and just kind of get a, a little sense of Roy, uh, you know, when he's not thinking about all of this, this great, you know, CX and, and ways of working uh, evolution. I, I know you told me before we started recording that you've gotten into off-roading lately. Tell us how, how you got into that and, and what it's been like of late doing that. Um, honestly, it, it, it began with, with me wanting to just disconnect. Um, and, uh, I tried disconnecting by through, through force of will and not responding to my phone and not looking at my phone. And I failed miserably because I, I <laughs> me too. <laughs> it's just the world we're in. Yeah, exactly. So, so I thought if I really want to get this right, I need to, I need to head out somewhere where I literally can't be contacted. And um, I, I live in a part of the world that is extremely, extremely hot. Um, and and uh, but for six months of the year, you can you can drive, you can drive out into the desert, you can drive out into the mountains, and the weather is great, and it and it never rains, so it's very easy to plan uh, to plan getting out of town, um, just by packing your stuff into into a car and heading out. But you need it you need it to be able to be you know off road worthy. And so I started getting into that just to be able to completely disconnect and. You know, it worked. I would, I would, I would head out 
um, you know, with, with, with my life partner and she, she and I would, would pack a tent and all of that. We'd go, we'd spend, we'd spend some time out there. And then over time, the hobby developed and I started getting into the rabbit hole of which suspension system is better and so on. And <laughs> now, I, now I'm being given lessons on, on how to, on how to, you know, uh, uh, climb up a, a, a hundred foot crest, a sand dune and, and try not to roll the car over and not, you know, get so scared that I take my foot off the gas as we're going across it. And it's, it's become this wonderful hobby where, where, you know, you, you need to take walkie talkies with you because there's just no, um, no connection to phones or anything there. And it's this complete, you know, it's, it's an endless desert or, or, or a mountain and you, you go out there, you forget everything and you just, um, you just off-road for a while. You camp when you're done. You you make some food. You share a meal with some people, and um, and you head back. And that's, you know, I've tried making my my weekend hobby the exact opposite of of, uh, exactly. of my weekday life. <laughs> as, as little as little technology. The the best technology out there is in the car. And the moment we camp, the maximum technology we're using is. Uh, is the fireplace? Oh, and the Bluetooth stereo. That's right. Yeah, you can't we, you can't go without the Bluetooth. Yeah, you need the music to keep it going. So if that's the most technology you have, you're doing something right. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was a great conversation. Really appreciate the time, and we will I'm sure be talking again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate the time here, and I've I've had a great time. Thank you so much. Same. And thanks to you all for listening to Human Centered as well. To learn more about our CX practice and our approach to the work, check us out online at vmlyr.com backslash CX. We'd also love to hear your feedback on the show. Give us a rating and offer up your thoughts wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and more. Have a topic idea or just want to drop us a line? You can connect with me on Twitter at Nick Brunker or just shoot us an email. The address is humancentered at vmlyr.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.